And so I thought that we would begin by sitting. We did say hello to everybody that was new. Has anybody come in who I haven't met ever? Just want to say your name. Does it feel good to be back? Good. Feels really great that because when you weren't here, I had to remember every week when I said something. If you weren't, you know, but if Ace were here, did I do that thing? Oh, I didn't do the thing. Ah, all right. Sorry about that. Okay. So now, who's going to tell me what's Ace's thing that I didn't do? There you go. Okay. So you walk in there. I deputize you. You can all be him. I forgot to say, turn around and say hello to somebody and make some small conversation with them. There you go. There you go. That's such a good idea. That's really a very good idea. It, for two reasons, it's a very good idea. Ace. One is it gets a little bit more energy up in you so that you just drove here, you come here, it's nice and warm in here, it's a pretty room. It's very easy to just like, kind of zone out and fall asleep. Uh, the other thing about it is you have a sense of I'm not sitting here alone. Many years ago, I, my friend and my colleague and my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said, you know what I do? He said, I decide when I'm sitting that I am not sitting for myself. I'm sitting on behalf of the person over there in front of me or next to me or two people ahead of me. How I sit is somehow registering in them I'm on behalf of them like I'll try to pick them up with my sitting now of course I'm, I'm so, you're not I mean I don't think that you're actually going into their body and mind but if you think I'm doing this for this other person and not even thinking necessarily may they feel better or may they feel good you could think that but it wakes you up a little bit because wow you know I'm like in charge of this other person and how their experience is. So then you wake up, like, I'm trying to think about what would be a cognate thing. Like, so would you mind babysitting for me? Or walk my dog around the block, please. We would do that. And it would say, oh, and we'd feel good about it. So meditate for me, okay? I, I, I also thought that when we sit now, that I could every 10 minutes, every seven or eight minutes, tell another technique of meditation. Because, I mean, silence is its own technique. Closing your eyes is another technique. So let's do those two. First of all, close your eyes. That's one technique of meditation. You don't have to sit in any way, but maybe don't slump, because that's not so good for you. Um, That's two techniques of meditation. Listen to the quiet room. That's three techniques of meditation. Because when you listen to the quiet room, especially because it's quiet, if you listen kind of like a detective, really, really listening, then you are waking up that faculty of hearing to more than a casual listening And when you do that, the whole rest of your body wakes up. It's just true. 
try to listen as hard as you can for the next whole minute and see if you don't feel while you're sitting that your whole body becomes a little bit more present to you. And you feel it, maybe tingling or warm or cool. And then just sit sit there, feeling yourself, and feel the breath come in and out of the body all by itself. And in a little bit, maybe 10 minutes, I'll tell you another technique to amplify this one.
as you continue to sit, if you'd like to experiment with um, steadying your attention, you might want to think about counting breaths as they arise and pass away, not changing them any, but decide, okay, now, and then count up to 10, maybe up to 20. Don't breathe differently. Let the breath arise and pass away, and arise and pass away. Just at its own speed. All that's extra is that you count You don't even have to count with numbers. You can count with the fingers. I like to do that, then I don't have to remember. I close all my fingers a little bit, and then I open them with each breath in and out. Sometimes I do 10, sometimes I do 20, and then I just stop the counting and let the breath continue and... I observe whether or not my attention stays with the breath. So it's just an experiment. Sometimes it makes the mind feel pleasant. Why don't you see, if you want to, what it does for you.
Maybe you'd like to experiment with breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. The Thich Nhat Hanh teaching. You could do that for a while until you don't feel like doing it anymore. My own experience is that it often is hard to stop smiling, but try that for a little bit. Breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out. I smile.
it's been our habit here to use the last part of our sitting quietly to mention into the space if it works for you to do that if you want to the names our names of people that you're thinking about with special intention in these times having in mind that everyone's life is challenging seems to me that when I sit quietly my own challenges arise in my mind and the challenges of other people that are dear to me particularly arise is there something about maybe giving some space for the heart to get heard Sometimes I think about people who are tremendously uh, overjoyed. I got a Hanukkah card yesterday from uh, a cousin of mine, well, a couple of cousins of mine, uh, whose uh, two sons, uh, both in this year, welcomed the first baby into their lives. I looked at these pictures of these two little babies and really tremendous pleasure comes into the mind and really the the spontaneous hope that uh, William and Carolina have lovely lives as first cousins and grandchildren and everything else to everyone else. And I also am thinking about my friend Rachel, whom I visited in New York, who is struggling with glioblastoma, just as John McCain is. And my friend Mary, who's awaiting final biopsy results on what looks like a really serious cancer that's metastasized at this point. I think maybe the mind gives up the things to think about, particularly when it's settled, because it can hold it, the the sufferings and the joys. Maybe because they, in some way, remind us of that piece of of wisdom, that this is the way life is, 10,000 joys, 10,000 woes. Who are you thinking about this morning? Months of fear and worry, they have reason. 
Thinking of my dear partner, Robert, who is on his 11th week of a six-month joyous exploration of South America. I will be joining him in Buenos Aires in March and will return back home on his 73rd birthday.
thinking of all beings that exist, and I ask that all beings be connected and empowered through the mind, soul, and I'm grateful for the fact that I'm back and we have each other and we have the space that we can trust to hold as our haven for awakening together to the truth of the Everlasting hopes that accompany our joys and our sorrows. You know, earlier, oh, I was flocking the sun. You know what? How are we going to do that? Uh, Take your chair and move it. Bring your chair someplace else. There you go. You don't want to be... No, you neither, Andrew. You don't want to be sitting in a peculiar place. Take your chair and put it somewhere else. There you go. Take your chair and bring it around into a shade. There you go. I I never finish realizing when we sit together and we share at the end of our time together who's in our life that we're thinking about, particularly these days, both uh, a sense of um, gratitude that we have a place where people can go and say what's in their heart and mind. Sometimes people actually tell me that, you know, I live a far way and I'd like to come to Spirit Rock. And I say, no, 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 just get the tape. You know, it's way too expensive to come. Uh, I said, no, I want to say what's on my mind, you know. And there are other places in the world, obviously. Everybody's uh, spiritual community is a place where you can say what's on your mind, all over the place. Uh, But I'm also, um, and I'm also aware of the need to connect for each of us with such a community where you can say, this is on my mind. And other people can say, you know, I have similar feelings and similar concerns. Every time, every week when people say, I think, you know, the names change, but people suffer in mind and in body. 
there's such a tremendous assortment of ways in which we can suffer in the mind and the body and the spirit. But the, the, what, what's, what we share in general, just by sharing, is that everybody's in that same boat. Uh, you know, when, we, when I started to study uh, Dharma and then started to teach it, I, I had, uh, maybe I had, and certainly my colleagues, we talked about uh, starting with the first of the Four Noble Truths, uh, especially as it's normally uh, translated as life is suffering. Because for the most part, here living in this county, we don't have suffering in the nature of the way that vast numbers of people in the world suffer in their body, in their spirit, in their mind, just to stay alive. But everybody suffers from loss and age and not having what they want. It's different kinds of suffering. But people would say, I don't like to say that, I'd like to say um, there are challenges in life. But, you know, one of the things that's happened to me as I've gotten older is I just really think that there's, suffering is a, is a fine word for it because we can't get it right. We can't get it to stay good. In, in, it certainly we suffer less in different ways and more in other ways. But um, the word dukkha, which is usually the word that's translated as suffering, means how it feels to ride in a wooden ox cart with a wooden axle on a... that actually comes from the root of the word that means the axle of an ox cart. And you can think about the ox cart in the day of the Buddha being a means of transportation of yourself or stuff. And, of course, on bumpy, unpaved roads. So it's the same as saying life is a bumpy ride. Um, and we're stuck on it. You can't get off the ox cart either keeps on going. Um, the other thing that I thought about is I just finished saying before we were going, before we started to do that meditation is that um, I wanted to talk about the cultivation of the virtues of the heart, generosity and morality and renunciation, kind of the talents that uh, human beings can learn, do learn as children from their parents and their family and their milieu, if it's a comfortable one. And there's a lot to say about if it's a comfortable one, because we are quite privileged, most of us here. I, I don't know everybody's early life. I've been reading, I'm going to come back, let me finish the sentence. That's like a problem I have of not finishing the sentence, and forget, even not forgetting where I was and coming back to it. I could finish the sentence. That, I, that, the, that to talk just about sila, about the cultivation of the heart virtues, without talking about the cultivation of clarity of and steadiness of mind so that you can see the suffering that they cause when they're uh, when they're not developed, it's not separate from that. Or to see the wisdom of having recognized this and learned it 
It's completely a heuristic business to take wisdom and make it into a four, an eightfold path and the four truths and the five hindrances and the five spiritual powers because there's really one truth. There's uh, wisdom that uh, manifests as compassion. There is wisdom and there is compassion. And there's a way to cultivate uh, and stabilize wisdom in a way that leads to a life of compassion. But it's hard to parse them apart. I'll tell you this story. This happened to me yesterday. I am making the point with this story. And actually, if I was making the point well enough, I shouldn't have to tell you what the point is. But just in case you don't get the point, what I want to say is that I actually don't think this is anything that is just its own thing. I think if the mind is oriented towards wisdom, then wisdom manifests in the possibility of seeing what's deeply true in every moment is a possibility. Maybe we should call wisdom deeply true. Yesterday morning, I got home just the day before yesterday, I think, maybe the day before that. Yesterday morning, I had, uh, I had coffee with my husband in a breakfast coffee shop in Larkspur. It's a normal thing to do. It's very busy. It's full of people coming and going. And we were talking. We sat. We had our coffee. And uh, we left. And we went two separate ways. And I did a bunch of chores. I went to the market. I did other things. And at some point, I realized, oh, I had gone into the coffee shop with my morning New York Times. It comes in my driveway all in a plastic wrapper. And I'd picked it up and taken it into the coffee shop. And I'd been talking to Seymour while we were having our coffee. And then I got up and left not only the paper, not a big deal, but I left my glasses on the top of the paper. And... Um, I went about my business here and there and there and there. And uh, then I realized, ah, it's already quite a lot of time since I was there. But I'll circle back and see. So maybe somebody handed it in. Maybe somebody gave it to the counter person. I go back. It's full of people. All, all, everybody moving around, changing. And my glasses and my paper are exactly where I left them. And I was very happy about that. It's not a big deal. I could have gotten another paper and, you know, they're just drugstore glasses. But I realized I kind of expected them to be there. I I really did. Uh, Then I thought, there's a real... um, I feel very protected living here. This is a solidly middle-class neighborhood. Middle-class is really pushing it a little bit. It's really more than that. It's, but it's a solidly middle-class neighborhood, and it's a well-behaved neighborhood, and people don't take other people's glasses or newspapers or, by and large, other people's stuff. And I had just been traveling for... Um, I'd been traveling for 10 days, so I wasn't in war-torn zones, but I was all kinds of places... And uh, I had my um, over-the-shoulder, hold-it-in-front bag in front of me with my winter coat buttoned up over it. I didn't feel menaced, but neither was I not careful about it. I was careful all, all the time. 
And I realized, you know, it's really a luxury to live here aside from everything else about it. I feel um, safe here. And that caused me to think about the line in the Metta Sutta that says, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. And I have had a plan to really talk, uh, maybe even write about the Metta Sutta, although people have done it, um, and I am talking about it all the time so I don't have to write about it. But I really think that if the whole rest of all my Dharma books and everything else, if I didn't have it anymore, this is anyway, the Sermon on Loving Kindness is the one piece of paper I carry around with me wherever I am. And sometimes I don't even take it out, sometimes I talk about it. Sometimes I take it someplace and get it duplicated so I can give it to everyone. I'll bring one for all of you. You can go on your on your computer and uh, look on Google for the Buddha's words on loving kindness, the Metta Sutta, and you will find... I'm going to read it to you in pieces because the part about cultivating um, goodness is the one that I'm really interested in. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So first of all, there's a piece of... You already have a hint that goodness is the path of peace. When people uh, decide that, okay, now I want to have a, uh, um, a, uh, a system for dedicating myself to living peacefully and wholesomely in the world, what they do is they recite precepts or, and they meditate on them. I undertake the training precept to abstain from harming living beings. I'm sure we would all be happy to say that. I mean, we all behave that way. I undertake the training precept to abstain from taking things that aren't given to me. Um, I told the story where I was teaching somewhere the other day about being uh, uh, on a meditation retreat in the Insight Meditation Society in Barry 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and somebody left an orange on a windowsill near the dining hall. A lot of times you eat breakfast and then you take an extra fruit or you had an extra fruit and you didn't eat it. And in those days we only ate lunch and breakfast, so we really didn't have supper. So people would save a fruit. People, somebody saved an orange, put it on a windowsill in the hallway. Two weeks later, that orange was still there, and it was moldy and white and horrible. And somebody finally took it and put it away. But you don't touch stuff that isn't yours, you know. Going back to the coffee shop yesterday was the same. I thought it would be there. I undertake the vow to abstain from taking things that aren't given to me and the vow to speak in a way that's not exploitive or abusive or untrue. Take a vow of honesty and a vow to use your sexuality or express it wisely. We are now living in the middle of a time where monumentally what's in front of our eyes all the time is who didn't express their sexuality in a way that's not exploitive or abusive. You know, as a matter of fact, I've been thinking about this because I've been saying that vow for 
40 years since I started. And I think, well, you know, maybe some people, but turns out that this is a very major vow to take one's sexuality, not be exploitive or abusive. I don't know, feel a little silly not feeling, of course, of course, but really the degree to which I think it's not, it's not only uh, people, men in power, uh, using it as a, in the ways that they do, but men in power in relationships, the amount of uh, domestic violence that happens every day all over the place. It's another form of not... So all of a sudden, for not expressing my sexu- for expressing my sexuality in a way that's wholesome and not exploitive or abusive. And then the last of the vows, which I really like, I undertake the vow to abstain from what intoxicates my mind and leads to heedlessness in the time of the Buddha that actually meant not drinking alcohol or maybe chewing herbs that made your, or seeds that made your mind confused. I think now about the corrosive effect of uh, 24-hour news cycles and cable television and uh, the fact that it's around us all the time in airports and every place. You have to a little bit hide not to see it going on all the time. And music in the elevators, it's not quiet at all, any place. That have a... um, When people go on retreat, uh, I think I'm able the first night of a retreat to say to people, I guarantee that you don't even have to meditate. You just have to live here for a week and do the schedule. When a bell rings, if you're sitting, get up and walk around, take a walk. If you're walking, bell rings, sit down for a while, wait to the next bell. Sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk all day. Sometimes take a shower and three times a day eat, that's all. Don't talk to anybody and don't read. You meditate, that's good. It might help it along. But if you just did that, that would be enough. My own experience is that when I'm here on retreat, after three or four days, my mind by itself, I mean, I am sitting and meditating, but all of a sudden it goes, like the elevator goes to another floor, that it's had to take two or three days to detox itself from the amount of stimuli coming in. Okay. Path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. I love that. We'll get around to talking about that more and more. Um, <laughs> desire is endless, the Buddha said. Um, are you getting catalogs every day in the mail from everybody in the world who uh, is promising that the, pr- the prices are slashed to prehistoric levels if you act in the next, in the next 36 hours and buy something? You get that, and then you think, well, I don't need anything in this catalog, but I'll just 
fan through it and see what's there. And you see something around it, you say, look at that. I never saw a thing like that. That looks like a good thing. And look, it used to be $80, but now it's $60. Hey, and over here, you know, it's $40. But before I looked in the catalog, I wasn't thinking about it for any dollars. You know, I didn't. It wasn't in my mind that I needed it. But the mind in contact with pleasant wants it. And the mind in contact with unpleasant wants to get rid of it. And we live pretty much like that. We are uh, sitting ducks for what we like and what we don't like to respond. And really when people are talking about contemplative techniques to soothe the mind, calm it, it's not so that it's going to become um, divorced from life, but just so it won't be so reactive to it. Say, wow, that's a great looking thing. And I don't need it. And I have enough stuff that in the same space of still being able to be alive and still not be held hostage by every whim, I want that. I didn't want that. Who said, somebody in this trip was telling me about teaching mindfulness uh, to young children, which I think is wonderful, it's taking over in the whole country. And some third grader or something answering the question, they've been doing mindfulness exercises like take five breaths or whatever it is, feel your body, take another five breaths, count to five. This is mindfulness. And somebody, somebody offering is, what's the defini- definition of mindfulness? And mindfulness, he said, means I, if I'm mad at him, I don't have to punch him in the face. <laughs> so that's what mindfulness means. If I'm mad at him, I don't have to punch him in the face. But that's a very big, that's a very big awareness. And the ability to take that awareness and have it translate into your neuromusculature and eventually really begin, begin to understand that not only do I not have to punch him in the face, but if I resist doing that, the urge will pass and my life will be infinitely better than if I did, than if I couldn't control myself. Maybe this is a time to mention that our friend Tony Bernhardt, how many people saw Tony's article printed in, the, in Lion's Roar? Yeah, isn't it beautiful, Elizabeth? Tony Bernhardt, for those of you who don't know, Tony Bernhardt lives up in Davis, California. This is Lion's Roar, the current issue, which you probably can buy in our bookstore. Tony is retired from a lifelong of public service, and now, among other things, he's a Dharma teacher, he's got a Sangha up in Davis, and uh, he uh, volunteers for a couple of years now at Folsom Prison, working with prisoners. Folsom is a prison for people who have done very heavy, terrible crimes. In this particular article, they show pictures of the cages, the cages that the men sit in. They're brought to the room that they're going to meet with Tony and they sit in these locked cages. And only when they're in the cages can the guards reach in and unshackle their hands. It's incredible to think about people whose impulse control 
is so poor that nobody can be near them. And they've been sitting, and he's been going there for a number of years. Uh, If a quiet space is what you need to practice mindfulness meditation, beginning, much less maintaining, a regular sitting schedule would feel almost impossible in a solitary housing unit in Folsom Prison. In the prison psychiatric unit, I meet with men called in what's called therapeutic modules. They look like oversized phone books, gray with small seats and tables, only small shell, shelves, really, welded to the inside walls. The cages have thick plastic shields in front of the grids and bars to protect clinicians from being spat on. Because the that ward is a medical environment, I'm not allowed to talk about the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, but the Dharma context of the meditation teachings comes through anyway, and I've learned to translate the teachings into street language and modify standard meditation instructions to fit the conditions of the men. You remember I just said the first noble truth is life is suffering, life is difficult, life is challenging. The name of this article is Shit Happens. People get that. Tony says people get that. Second noble truth is suffering is struggling with what's happening to try to make it the way we want it to be even if we can't. It's called imperative is the cause of suffering. Imperative, it's got to be different is what changes pain into suffering. The second noble truth that Tony uses with these men, first is shit happens, the second is we make it worse. We make it worse. One of his injunctions to them, his uh, teaching of wisdom is, don't make it worse, be realistic, and don't be stupid. Be realistic and don't be stupid is how they learn right view and right intention. We riff on that whenever it's apparent that unrealistic expectations are leading to frustration and anger. What do you expect? They'll sometimes say to each other now, shit happens. Guards are guards and not nurses. What do you expect from them? If you expect them to be honorable, like nurses, they're really just guards. You're setting yourself up for frustration and anger. One of these men said to Tony one time, uh, or said in the group, he said, you know, it's a very good thing that I'm in this cage because given what so-and-so just said, if I wasn't in the cage, I would have leaped up and hit him. So it's good that I'm here. I mean, it's a terribly sad thing, but that's a monumental amount of self-awareness. And said, well, why is Tony doing this vast output of energy for these number of men who will never be out? He's doing it because it's a kind thing to do. He's doing it because it's a kind thing to do and because he can do it and it's one person at a time and because in the doing of it, he feels better. doesn't matter how many people you help. It matters that your heart is helping someone. I, decided, I, I had this experience just before I left on the trip and I kept talking about it because it stayed so in my mind. 
there was a there is a man who stands on the corner of Laurel Grove and Sir Francis Drake, where I've lived for fifty five years, and he hasn't been there the whole fifty five, but he's been there a long time now. He's an older man. He's got a, a, a jacket that says traffic guard, and he stands on that corner for an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half in the afternoon when school children are coming and the children are on scooters and bicycles and all kinds of stuff and there aren't really sidewalks on Laurel Grove so they're scooting along and riding along and there are cars and all kinds of ways to turn and he's got his big sign on the corner and he is so solicitous and so his whole world is that corner and you see that when he's walking these little kids across the street he is entirely paying attention to them and holding these people back. He's totally serious about his job. When it's raining, he's standing with an umbrella. And when he finishes getting them across the street, he says, I hear him. He says, have a very good day. He's been their traffic guard. You know, there will be some children who will go to school, a whole grade school, with this one traffic guard on the corner. And I see him, and he is 100% doing his job. And I think, well, you know, how can we, any of us, fix the whole world? We can't. You know, some people have a very big ability to make a difference. Politicians, for instance, have a very big ability. We have small abilities, most of us, and we can use the abilities in many ways. I can be doing this and doing this and doing this. And when I'm doing it, whatever it is, I could be fully there and really doing it and making a difference in one tiny amount of the world. It's very, I think, for me, I looked at that man and I thought, what if there's a, a heavy blanket of doom that's hanging over the whole planet? Just let's say, maybe there is uh, 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 a uh, worry about doomsday. or And maybe it's just up here over the world. And maybe it not falling down depends on everybody holding it up. And everybody can only hold up the blanket where they are. And so we're holding up the blanket where we are on every interchange. These people, the crossing guard is holding it up. I'm holding it up. All the people who didn't take my glasses are holding it up. Every time we do the right thing and we keep the world safe, for the people around us as well as the bigger world. We're doing the right thing. There's a... Uh, every year I get an email from uh, from uh, the um, Metta in Action. Metta in Action, Loving Kindness in Action. Is I'll pass this around so you can see it. Uh, but maybe you can see this picture. It's got a lot of great pictures in it. They're five girls. They're nuns. And they look like they started maybe uh, five or six years old. And they're nuns in um, nunneries. Now 30 nunneries that this Metta in Action is involved with in Burma. My friend Carol Wilson, who's a Dharma teacher here and at, all over the world actually, goes every year at Christmas time and spends January in Burma with uh, a group that she's been going with for years. And at this point, the group has helped 900 nuns. These are little girl nuns and they're grown-up nuns. Um, 
She's thanking everybody for their support over the years. Your contribution is a lifeline that accomplishes many things. This year, your generosity built new toilets, wells, and covered bathing areas, added roofs, ceilings, walls for protection, and additional rooms, repaired badly termite-damaged buildings, upgraded kitchen facilities, prevented flooding in the raining season, and, of course, offered basic health care and general support to everyone. Because of your donations, 900 nuns, as well as several orphaned infants and boys living in 30 nunneries can live safely and comfortably, and the nuns in charge of each nunnery can sleep much more easily, not having to lie awake at night wondering how they'll find the resources to keep everything going. And the whole thing is pictures of these children and their facilities. One more thing it says here. This is not so much a religious endeavor to have them become Buddhist nuns. The role of nunneries as places of refuge for women and girls has become more essential than before. Each year we hear more heartbreaking stories of desperation and despair about people who have found safety in nunneries, like the one I heard about a girl from such and such a state who ran away to the nunnery after her stepfather and mother sold her brother, sold her brother and sister. Another story was of a seven-year-old girl who was unable to speak for months after arriving at the nunnery. Her family had been farmers in, the, in a conflict zone. One day her parents went out and never came back. Can you imagine being a seven-year-old girl and your parents go out and they don't come back? How can you even, we can't even think that. So I read this yesterday. It comes every year. Every year I send money. And um, not so much, just what I can. But today, yesterday, I thought, you know, I'm bringing this here and I'm passing it around. Feel free to look at the pictures of the nuns. And uh, also think about how you think about that as it comes by. Every day in the mail, along with the catalogs, there's at least 20 other pieces of mail about other things that I can support. None of them are not good, I don't think. They're all good things. Isn't that true? So to think about who do I, who do I decide? Do I do something for everybody? Do I do a little bit for everybody? Do I say, well, these are the ones that really appeal to me? I don't know. These are rhetorical questions. Uh, do I not do this one because of that, 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 The very best piece of paper that I've been carrying around, I've been telling people the only paper I carry around is the Metta Sutta. That's not totally true. The other paper that I carry around, well, I always carry this one, of um, the poem by Pablo Neruda about keeping quiet. And I always carry the list of the talents of the heart but I don't always take them out to read it but what, I, what I've added to it is a uh, you can find this if you look on Google on the uh, uh, Saturday March 4th of 2017 there's an editorial called The Pope and the Panhandler do you know this one? uh 
City dwellers everywhere might acknowledge a debt to Pope Francis. He's offered a concrete, permanently useful prescription for dealing with panhandlers. It's this. Give them the money and don't worry about it. The Pope's advice comes from a, a, out of a Milan magazine just before the beginning of Lent. And it's very simple. It's scripturally sound. You know, take care of the least among you. Uh, and it's possibly confounding, even subversive. Living in the city, especially in metropolises where homelessness is an unsolved, ever, never-ending crisis, the homeless basket is out every week there, means that at some point in your day or week, a person seeming or claiming to be homeless or suffering with a disability will ask your help. You probably already have a policy. You keep walking or not. You give or not. Lose coins, a dollar, or just a shake of the head. Your rule may be a blanket rule or case by case. If it's case by case, that means you have your own on-the-spot, individualized benefits program with a bit of means-testing mental health and character assessment and criminal background check to the extent that any of this is possible from a second or two of looking someone up and down. Francis's solution eliminates that effort, but it's not effortless. Speaking to a particular magazine in Italy, the Pope said that giving something to someone in need is always right. But what if you say someone uses the money for a glass of wine? His answer, if a glass of wine is the only happiness he has in life, that's okay. Instead, ask yourself, what do you do on the sly? <laughs> what happiness do you seek in secret? And think about that, you know. Uh, another way to look at it, he said, is to recognize how you are the luckier one with a home, a spouse maybe, and children maybe, and then ask why your responsibility to help should be pushed on to someone else. Then he posed a greater challenge. He said the way of giving is as important as a gift. Should not simply drop a bill into a cup and walk away. You must stop, look the person in the eyes, and touch his or her hands. And the reason for that is to pre preserve dignity, to see another person not as pathology or a social condition, but as a human with a life whose value is equal to your own. That's a tremendous thing to say. I just read it. It's a person. It's a person. Yeah, I thought about it a lot in in New York. That I I really worry there because it's cold, and where do people go at night? America is in the middle of a raging argument about poor outcasts, not just uh, the people who are homeless for all kinds of reasons, but poor outcasts from everywhere. We're a world of refugees going, trying to find somebody who isn't going to push us out. You know, that happened after World War II um, as well. There was a tremendous uh, rush for Jews who had been interned in camps or hidden during the war to come to the United States. 
And there was a very strict quota about letting them in. They mostly didn't get in. They mostly got to go to uh, Canada. I know that because they got transit visas to go through New York and they stayed. My, my father's few relatives that had survived stayed with us. They came to the United States, but they had transit visas and they had to go on in a couple of days up to Canada. And then they were given, some of them were given land by the Canadian government up in uh, Saskatchewan uh, and, uh, and went there and made lives. And uh, they stayed with us. It was, I was nine years old. It was a very uh, significant thing for me to hear their stories. And they didn't speak English, but I speak Yiddish, so I, I could understand them. And uh, you know what still touches me so much? My parents were giving them lessons in how to say, uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand you. I don't speak English. Uh, because they didn't want to be a, a offensive on their trip and people. And it's a hard sentence. If you don't speak the language at all, to suddenly start to say, I'm sorry, I don't understand you, I don't speak English, and you're not an English speaker, it's very hard. I remember my mother going over and over and saying, I don't understand you. And I said, they're not going to understand. But anyway, it's very, it was very touching to me, my mother giving them lessons on how to do that. How about that for a world, everybody pushing everybody out? No room at the inn, you know, that uh, the whole idea of, well, that's another whole story. But what does it really mean? A significant number of uh, pastors, evangelical pastors, are starting to now talk up about this is not evangelism, what's going on. This is the, the evangelicals have been hoodwinked into. Uh, that would be a really monumental news. I don't remember the name of, an, of a San Francisco pastor who went to the South and has been working in the election, talking about, this is not Jesus' message, push out people. That's what I carry around. The whole thing is, I'm going to come back to it a bunch of times because it's so clear in my mind. And in teaching in the last few weeks, I was really thinking, I have never, I continue to understand more and more deeply why, how taking care of other people, not yourself, is, is really the, source of strength in our lives that the people who think it looks like so and so really knocks themselves out on behalf of a lot of people really make effort on be part of other people it's fantastic it's also fantastic for them to really make a circle out of this is a living being and I am ministering to it I remember all kind. I, I have like a little archive of of stories of people taking care of other people who at that moment that they're taking care of them they don't seem like other people they think about people like some people 
took care of the person who set off that pipe bomb in um, the uh, outside the Port Authority or inside the tunnel connecting the Port Authority to the Times Square station. I was there in that Penn Station hub uh, last week. It's, fr- it's, it's, I think, one of the most crowded transit places in the whole world, that people all over the place coming on, going to the Long Island Railroad and they're going to the Port Authority and they're going to Brooklyn and they're going to Manhattan. Throngs and throngs of people. So that man made a bomb and unfortunately meant to hurt other people and hurt himself. But you see him getting put on an ambulance and taken to the hospital and apparently treated and taken care of. That seems to me exactly right. Um, there was a, uh, this is some years ago now, because I can always remember it from where I was teaching it, and it was way when we had the old hall. There was a tremendous explosion in a wedding hall in Jerusalem. And a lot, a lot of people died. There was really a, a terrorist explosion. And uh, a lot of people died. And in uh, interviewing uh, the doctors at Hadassah Hospital that were taking care as best they could, all the hospitals, with people who had come in, they had did a fair number of uh, transplants of organs that were revivable for people who were waiting for organ transplants. And they, they talked about a particular Jewish-Israeli surgeon who transplanted a viable heart into the body of a Palestinian person who was online waiting for the next heart transplant. And someone asked him about that. And he said, I'm a doctor. You just take care of the next person who's there. And I think to myself, what a world it would be if everybody took care of the next person who was there. What a world it would be if everybody could walk into a healthcare facility and get taken care of. Uh, the, the, I have a very, very big worry about this tax plan that's coming out that will really, really undo healthcare for so many people. One of my daughters works for an organization that um, actually an organization called EARN, I'm pretty sure, E-A-R-N. It's a corporation. I think everybody who works there is a woman and the CEO is a woman. And what they do is they help uh, uh, low-income people figure out a way to have a savings account and how to budget their money and put away. Because half the people in the United States, I think it's 50%, do not have 40... $400 extra should some emergency arise. Most of us in this room, all of us in this room, probably are not $400 away from being without funds. You know? We wouldn't be here, probably, just from demographics and getting here and coming in. But half the people in the United States don't have that kind of money. And they have to... One of my friends told me the other day, I said, have you got health care? And he said, um, I act, yeah. He said, finally, I have health care. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I just finally turned 65. So now I have health care. 
said I was terrified up to now because I didn't. So, I mean, how can you go through a life and really have to think this is... Why does not the entire United States know that in Europe everybody has health care? That's like, I mean, you could make a headline on all the papers that said, you you know, everybody who's worried about socialized medicine, forget about it. Everybody in Europe gets taken care of. It is even outgrown. I actually am old enough to know that when I was a child, when my husband was in medical school, the AMA was opposed to socialized medicine because they really wanted to, you know, be able to make tons of money, not just a living, tons of money. And and physicians were well paid. Comparatively speaking, it was the path towards not having to worry about your income. So they opposed it. But now people in medical school do not oppose it. They are solidly behind health care for everybody. I think when you when you go into a profession not to keep yourself financially comfortable, but because you're really determined to minister to people, you really want to minister to people. The thing about learning by taking care of people. So here's, the, here's one of the points that I didn't get to make, which I meant to make, by saying when I went back, my glasses were there. I thought to myself, this wouldn't happen other places. And it happens because uh, because this is a this is a society that isn't needy. That I can't. I don't. I don't think it has to do with we're all nicer than other people all over the world. I really don't think so. But we're we're not poverty stricken here. People who are in poverty, if they find something lying around that's worthwhile, then they take it. Wishing in gladness and in safety. If I wrote a book ever. Maybe I shouldn't say it. Maybe I will, and I'm telling the title. If I write a book ever, or a booklet, a little book, what I'm going to call that is, what I'm going to call it is In Gladness and in Safety. Because I think that the whole of practice is to organize the mind into a place of gladness and safety. And I can't make my mind safe just by saying everything is, I mean, you, you have to take a certain amount of care uh, and watch out for yourself. But we live in a safe, relatively safe environment. So I feel safe. But how, how, how to keep the mind glad and feeling unthreatened? You know, I think to myself, because the obvious question is, what if I suddenly, like one of my two friends who have diagnoses of terrible illnesses right now, both of them are unhappy about being sick. But the both of them are absolutely clear that this is what happens to people. Neither of them is hysterical. Neither of them is saying at this point, why me? I mean, it's clear, why not me? We're old. We're supposed to get sick from something. We all of us wanted to get sick from something else at a later time, that's all. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, no, thank you, not now. But we didn't plan on it. Ace did not plan that morning to have this particular person drive into his side of his car. Uh, we make the best plans that we can, and then things happen. And to be able to say things happen.
I don't want to say shit happens. Tony said that already, but uh, everything happens. Beautiful things happen and difficult things happen. Really, maybe the piece that of, of the Dharma that we're trying to really recognize is that uh, it's po- this is it. This is the third noble truth. It's possible to live this life saying, in wisdom, saying these are the kinds of things that happen and that the best thing I can possibly do is meet my life as a friend with compassion, with uh, appropriate action. One of my friends facing her imminent, if not this moment, death, has given um, the substantial uh, amount of money that she has put in her will for each of her grandchildren who are not adults yet but reasonably coming along is she's given them the money now while she's living for the younger ones that are still school age of course their parents get to put it in the bank but she gets to visit with each of them and talk to them about what he's going to do with it and one of them has decided that in summertime he's going to use it all for tennis lessons because he's been watching the tennis on the TV and he's apparently gifted at that. And someone else is going to use it for going with a certain travel program next summer and someone else is going to use it for something else. So that she's enjoying now her generosity to them. Uh, you know, why not? It's, it's, it's not only why she's already decided to give that amount. Why not talk to give it now and... Um, be able to talk about it. You have to be able to talk about it and not not see it. Say, I wanted to read you a few little things and then we'll continue next week with wishing in gladness and in safety. Uh, one of the things that I read, I am reading, is a book called Calm Clarity. You can't get it yet because it isn't published yet, but it will be in 2018. Uh, Someone who was on one of the retreats that I taught uh, over the weekend has written this. And she teaches mostly to uh, teenagers um, uh, a completely secular version of how to learn to control your mind and she's got all these little um, what do you call it helpful hints uh, wise things to say like we don't laugh because we're happy we're happy because we laugh you think so? I do Um, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it that's a very that's a very tremendously important thing to say. Actually, it was Albert Einstein who said that. It means if the thing is a problem, people sometimes come on retreat and they say, "I really needed some time out of my schedule, so I have a few decisions I have to make, and I really wanted some time to sit quietly and meditate on them." And I really, I don't say it. What? what I think to myself, 
I don't want to tell them forget about it. But I, I don't tell them forget about it. I say, listen, don't think about the problem too much. Because uh, if you could have thought your way through it, you would have already done that. What you're really hoping for is not a new, th- a different thought, but you're hoping for a thought, but it's a new thought, and it's not going to happen with the same cast of characters. But if your mind relaxes, all of a sudden, you get a new perspective. You say, ah, I realize now I should do X about Y, or Z is also true. Every time... <laughs> I, what did I think about this morning? I thought, oh, this is so ridiculous. Maybe I'll feel really ridiculous telling you. Let me just think. <laughs> Too late. I, 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 I just got home two days ago. I haven't gone anyplace. I got my car this morning. I start to come to Spirit Rock. There's no gas. I'm really down to nothing in the car. And I needed to do the teleconference earlier, and I was a little bit pushed about being there on time and I didn't think I'd be able to stop for gas So, and I, I thought to myself you know this car was sitting there in the driveway for 10 days and you know I uh, surely one of the people who lives in my house had driven my car and they, they saw this and they left it <laughs> and I'll just mention it later you know I really would like it a lot if while I'm not home use my car if you notice that I'm thinking that and all of a sudden I stop at a traffic light or something I must have like been paying attention to the traffic guard and I suddenly had a wider thought about it it's my car probably nobody drove it in the past two weeks probably sitting there with the same gas from the beginning or somebody did drive it and they didn't check it's not their business it's my car. It's my business. I should have checked yesterday. But I was getting all whipped up about it. I'm going to tell them. And just in time, I think, wait a minute. And besides, even if they drove it, and they purposely, they didn't purposely say, I'm going to mess up mom, and I'm not going to... <laughs> it's not going to do any good. If I say anything to anybody, all I'll do is to create a little anguish in the middle of an otherwise anguish-laden day. You just turn on the news, you see anguish about this or that or the other. I am reading a new book by Dan Ellsberg called The Doomsday Project. Anybody read it? Did you finish it? I do want to finish. I just... Well, I'm hopeful. You know, I don't think, you know... uh, Actually, I'm already on a higher note. I started, read two paragraphs... Anyway, it's, it's difficult reading. It's not what you call a page-turner, although it's very interesting and tremendously compelling. But it's hard. You have to really work at it. You have to... Huh? At the Rand... Com- yeah, they fi- and they figured it out. Yeah. That's the scary part. So it's about how they figured out how to bomb the world at the smithereens. So it's a a distressing beginning. But I also think I realized correctly, because I felt better from it, that I have this vision that one person can push a button in a fit of pique, that you have a feeling that one person has their hand on the button. And I think that's not true. Other people have to sign off on that. 
I read that too, yeah. That was reassuring. Yeah, that was reassuring. But anyway, it, I'll keep reading it, I'll tell you about it, but it's... So, I mentioned it just before because it also informs my mind not only about, wow, there are really problems to look at, but one of those problems is not who put or didn't put gas in my car. That, uh, that, that the very least amount of wisdom I can take away from that is there's no point in this overburdened with worries world to worry about anything that already happened. I went to the gas station on my way here. I put gas in the car. It's all solved. There's no reason to bring it up with anybody. I really am thinking about suffering on every level. And that wise speech, I really think, is watching what you say so that you don't complicate anybody else's life. It's a hard for a person like me who talks so much, you know, I <laughs> tends to chatter. But really, really. So here's a homework. We have like three minutes. Here's a homework. This is the list of perfections of the heart that the Buddha said you needed to... He said he had cultivated in his lifetimes before he became enlightened. They are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. I saw half a dozen people write them down and nobody else. So I really want to, want to suggest that. I'm going to say them again and think, think to yourself, which one do you do best? And you say, oh, I practice. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, uh, energy, determination, truthfulness, loving kindness, and equanimity. Which one do you do the best? You say, I'm pretty good at this. Determination. How many people are pretty good on determination? Yeah, there you go. What one would you like to work on for this week? Energy, Energy Andrew says. What? Patience. Pick one. Who's going to come back next week? There you go. Pick one. So you don't have to tell me what it is now. But really see, if you pick one and you say, I'm really going to do it because of da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you don't have to do a big number about it, but during the day, say, how am I doing on it? How am I doing with it? You know, when I get a, um, when I park somewhere in a big parking lot, I take a picture on my uh, cell phone for where I park my car. Because, I mean, huh? Oh, that's not so bra- I mean, somebody else told me to do that. So that when you come out of the, the shopping mall three hours later, all addled with what was in there, you can find your car. Uh, so it's, do something, like put it on your refrigerator or put it on your bathroom mirror, tape it on, and then see what happens. Just put it on the bathroom mirror. Ace, what were we going to say? So what I was going to say is there... Very smart woman that actually helped me with my whole 23 days in the hospital 
uh, also was in, and it was also helped my friend who had an infection after surgery. And this woman said very clearly to me, she said, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. Yeah. Yeah. This woman, this, yeah, this woman, this you. <laughs> Thank you, dear. Really, thank you. And all the numbers of people, all the numbers of people in the hospital, the nursing care, those people are angels, aren't they? They are. They were, they were fantastic. Yeah. They were fantastic. Yeah. You know, and there's two parts. First of all, they make you feel better. But also the experience of feeling that someone is caring for you is a great thing. Somebody wants to wash your body or tidy it up or do something is great. And to recognize that. I think partly we, we feel something, but then the part that says, oh, that felt good. When I discovered that my glasses were still there, not only did it feel good, but I thought to myself, how many people in the world do not feel safe? It's my how many people in the world. I think it in the dentist all the time. I don't like having dental work done. I don't like having injections in my mouth. I don't like all of that. It's unpleasant. But instead of planning my vacation in Hawaii, I really try to think about how many people in the world can go to dentists. I am enormously lucky. I have teeth. I can chew. If I get infections in my teeth, people will take care of it. How many people in the world... And the corollary of it is, what can I do so that the world has... The whole world can go to dentists. What can they do? I really think it's the point of that the Bodhisattva vow is I vow to end suffering for all beings. How can I do that? I can't run around. I don't even know all the beings. All I can do is in all the aspects of my life that I am doing something to do it for the benefit of all beings involved. Myself included. I'm so pleased to be back. It's like... It's like they say, oh, the team is playing in their home stadium and they're happy about it. <laughs> so I'm happy to be in my home stadium. <laughs> and I'll see you next week. And sign up for New Year's. Sign up for New Year's. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.